if I'm smiling, it's, there's a little less than three foot tall human being smiling at me, so. Okay. The book of Numbers. Okay. What I'll do tonight is I'm going to read the first four verses. It's a lengthy first chapter. I think what we'll do is um, I'm going to take chapter one. I'm going to take chapter one in, in at least two sermons. Perhaps later I'll come back to the business of the Levites um, and, and then make a third sermon. It's a, it's a large chapter. This is our new s- series in the book of Numbers. We just finished Finding Christ in the Psalms. We did 18 sermons. And it's just a mini-series. I like doing, uh, I like doing exegetical series from, the book, from a book, which is just easier for me to prepare my, my lessons, my sermons. So 36 chapters, my guess is somewhere between 40 to 50 sermons, roughly. So maybe a year. I, uh, and who knows? I could be in heaven uh, this evening. So uh, men make their plans. Um, God is the one who carries him out. But that's my plan, at least. Let me read one through four, please. Um, God's word. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting, on the first of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families, by their fathers' households, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. With you, moreover, there shall be a man of each tribe, each one the head of his Father's household. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are your children upon the earth, and your Bible, your word, the scripture is a light and a lamp to our path. It shows us our need of Christ and the provision of Christ. It shows us your guidance, even through a howling wasteland, a pillar of fire at night, and a pillar of smoke during the day. Lord, you are our front guard, our rear guard. You never leave us, never forsake us, and we are safe in you. Teach us these truths, O God. Increase our faith. Forgive our unbelief, O God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, a new series. Because this is a new series, and whenever I start a new series, the the first, just for me, I don't know why, the first sermon out of the gate is the hardest because in a way, this sermon almost will be something of an overview, at least. So the way that I ordinarily work is I take a passage, and then I peel that thing out like an onion. And it's nothing tricky. I follow a scheme by Martin Lloyd-Jones, Explain, Apply. And he's followed a scheme. I forget the name of it in Latin. There is a Latin name for it, but it's Explain, Apply. Lectio Continuo, or something like that. And so because a new, that I'm in a new series, it's harder for me to do that. So I do want to have something of an overview of the book of Numbers. And then, as I say, my intention is next week and following, we're really going to follow the text cl- more closely. I want to open with what I consider to be the general theme. If I were to step back from the book of Numbers and say, what is the book of Numbers about? The book of Genesis, it's about the beginnings 
of the Gospels is about the record of the Lord Jesus Christ, his person, his work. The book of Acts, in general, it's about the advance of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ through the servants. I'm sorry, I have such a weak voice. Um, So then it's helpful when you are looking at a book the way that I was trained is you read it straight through, get the general lay of the land, look for the main teaching or two of the main teachings, and then you do that in the subdivisions of each particular passage. So I believe the main teaching of the book of Numbers is what we see in my sermon title, God with his people or God with us. It's the Emmanuel, which means God with us principle, Christ with us, God with us. And then in, in the context of the book of uh, Numbers, it's God with us in the wilderness. And so we are, as Christian people, we're not home yet. I'll show my eschatological position. I'm not post-millennial, um, although post-millennialism is a form of post-millennial. All that to say this, I don't believe the scripture teaches that prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the world would become progressively Christian, truly Christian, not just in name. And so quantitatively and qualitatively, more Christians and better Christians at that. I don't believe that's the teaching of the scripture. I think the Lord Jesus Christ says, when the Son of Man comes back, will he find what upon the earth? Faith. And he says, many are on a broad road going to a bad place, and few are on a narrow road going to a good place, many and few. Even though those few over the epochs of human history will be myriads and myriads and myriads. There'll be a lot of people in heaven, not just a few people named Joe. So when we come here, we're looking at God with us in the wilderness. And that's why I'm going to make application throughout the sermon series that Peter says, she who is in Babylon greets you. I lost a wonderful church member of many, many years, I think 14 years. I said, we live in Babylon And he came to me later and said, you don't love America, you hate America, I'm quitting this church. I'm quoting Revelation 2 and Revelation 3 and I'm applying the principle and also from Peter saying she who is in Babylon. Peter wasn't writing from Babylon, physical Babylon, but spiritual Babylon. And um, Christ refers to the place where he was crucified as Sodom. He was crucified in Jerusalem. So I, I... But nevertheless, so I am going to argue that we are in the wilderness. This is Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12. We're not home yet. And so we're going home. And the world will never be our home until Christ renovates it along the lines of burning everything with fiery heat and so on. So all of this is going to be very spiritually applicable to us that God is with us in the wilderness. And he's always with us. That's the theme. And I would argue that uh, the 39 Old Testament books and the 27 New Testament books all teach that common theme from the preaching of the first, go- the first proclamation of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 all the way to uh, uh, Revelation 22. It is that principle of Emmanuel, God with us. The promised seed of the woman is going to come and that theme runs through the whole scripture. The seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15 and in the seed of Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and so on in, in 28. And then the seed of, of David. And then we come to the New Testament epoch. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says in Galatians 3, it's Christ. Christ is that seed of the woman of Abraham, of David. 
that theme of God coming to, to dwell with man, to reconcile fallen man back to him, is the common theme through Scripture. So if you miss that, you miss Scripture. And if you acquire that, then you understand the essence of the Bible. So that's what this text is teaching us. Now, when I say God with us, I mean God with his people. And we're going to argue throughout this series, and certainly tonight, that God has a people. He owns everything. God is the creator of all human beings. And so as reference to God's the creator of everything, visible, invisible, he created in the space of six days, out of nothing, by the word of his power, all good and very good. How long are the six days? I think 624, but that's another sign. So he created everything, and he governs everything he creates. So every human being, irrespective of what they believe religiously, belongs to God. He is their creator. They are dependent creatures. They're rebels if they're not believers, but they are still dependent upon him. They're creaturely. I don't mean his people as creator to creature. I mean his people as redeemer to the redeemed. So this is our father which art in heaven, our holy brother, our holy counselor, the, the, the Holy Spirit. I mean in that filial covenantal, his people. So we see God is with his people in the wilderness. And this is when Christ ascends. After Christ rises from the dead, he gives the great commission. And he says, go to the nations, make disciples, baptizing them. And then he says, what? And lo, I am what? I'm with you to the end of the age. That's this. That's this, the general theme. The general theme of all 66 books. And it certainly is, in my opinion, the general theme of, um, of the book of Numbers. And as I say, with his people. And so when we say God with us, as a reconciled, redeemed child of God in Christ, that's wonderful news. To know that God is always with us and we're always with God, that is the most welcome news that we can ever hear. But if you are unregenerate, you're not born again, you're not a believer, and I told you, God is with you. What would be, what would pop up in your bosom? This is a horrible thing. You would want to run off into the woods and, woods and bushes and hide yourself with a fig leaf. So it's the news that we find most comforting is that God is with us. And, and without faith, uh, we would only find the offending presence of God rather than the reconciled, friendly presence of God. So God designs. Let's, let's, let's start this series by saying the general theme, God with us. And let's start the series by recognizing that... Um, Human beings are unique creatures. We are always creaturely. When I was a kid, we were Roman Catholics, and we had, and I don't even know if it's Roman Catholic theology. We just had bad theology. We thought when you died and went to heaven, you became an angel. And what's the foolish movie with Jimmy Stewart and the angels getting their wings and becoming an angel and all that? So there is some, I guess it was culture. We thought when a human being died and they went to heaven, they became an angel, which is silly. Um, human beings don't become angels. Angels don't become angels. Can appear like human beings, but they don't. We don't become the other thing. Only human beings are created by God to be image bearers. In the image of God, in man is not corporal. It's not physical. It's spiritual. And as God created Adam and Eve, as these two special creatures, image bearers, He created them with true knowledge, true righteousness, with true holiness, with dominion over the creatures. And so that special image of God in man, God created man with the ability, only human beings, 
to have a union with God, a spiritual union, and a friendship, as the Dutch like to say. We would say union and communion. The Dutch will say union and friendship. We are created, united to God, Adam and Eve, and then as God's friends. And the Bible says in the book of Genesis, chapter 3 and 8, that, that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. Now, that God, that's a God with us. Right from the very beginning, God created man to be with God, to dwell with God, to enjoy God, to adore God, to worship God, God with us. What happened to all that? How far into the Bible before that wonderful God with us was utterly ruined? How far? How far do we make it? Do you know your Bible? You have Genesis 1, the creation of all things in general. You have Genesis 2, an extrapolation, not a second Genesis account, a creation account, but a further extrapolation of the creation of Adam and Eve and then the creation of marriage. So creation, chapter 1, chapter 2, you make it to Genesis chapter 3. There's the temptation of, uh, of Eve by the devil, Genesis 3, 1 through 8. And then the Eve listens to the devil over against the word of God, which is always his technique. And then she becomes the first evangelist for the devil. She tells her husband, like a dutiful wife, obey me. He does. And he listens to the wife as she listens to the devil against God. And here we are. So that beautiful God with us became a shambles. And then rather than God with us, because of sin, sin has separated or severed that union that we had with God and destroyed the friendship. So no friendship, no communion, because no union. And then the picture of that is God casting Adam and Eve out. And the whole rest of the Bible is about God's reconciliation, reforming that taking men away from the dominion of the devil back to himself so it could be a God with us again. And that's the Bible. And that's why Christ has come, to break the power of the devil over us. This is Colossians 1.13, to take us out from under the sway or the kingdom of, the, of, the, of darkness and death and to place us in the kingdom of the beloved, Christ Jesus, that we could dwell with God and God would dwell with us. That's that term tabernacle. So the very last chapter of the Bible is Revelation, and God will tabernacle with his people. So we started with it, we lost it in Adam, we regain it in the second Adam. That's what the book of Numbers is pointing to. God will restore the the union and the friendship with his people, and he will always dwell with us. And it's always going to be found in Christ. And we'll see little snippets of that, shadow of that in the book of Numbers, if that makes sense. So... um, That's what we're considering the general theme to be, God with us. It's restored, as I say, um, what was lost in the fall. We find it in in redemption. And I, I, I wanted to read Psalm 139 because it gets us at this idea of God always dwelling with his people no matter what. And the psalmist in Psalm 139 says, if I go essentially to the top of the mountain, you are there. If I go to the depths of the sea, you are there. This is an attribute of God, which is an incommunicable attribute. He doesn't share it with the creature. There are some attributes which we call communicable attributes, holiness, goodness, love, that he shares, a reflection of those, always in Christ. But there are certain other attributes that he never shares, even with the redeemed. And one of them um, is omnipresence. And the omnipresence of God, even for the believer, it should be comforting, but it's also a little frightening that God, 
the Bible says that Christ walks among the lambs. Christ is here right now. God is here. He's always with us. And so on one hand, it's very, very comforting. But sometimes Christians, this maybe nobody in this church, sometimes we sin in thought, word, and deed, maybe every day. And so when we look around and think, where's my wife? <laughs> Where is the boss? Um, God is right there. He's always with us. So there's a comfort to this aspect of God dwelling with his people at all times in all places. If, you, if we stopped and thought about what we say we believe and what the Bible teaches and we say we believe, boy, I think it would change us. Um, it's R.C. Sproul that says preachers who are faithful to the Bible preach and believe more than they do. Oh, that's so true. I know way more than I do, uh, which is convicting. That we would know a thing and not be practically changed by that knowledge. If, if we really said to ourselves, God is with me every step. No one would ever have to check up on our viewing history. The boss would never have to check up on our time clock if people still use time clocks. Um, we would be a radically changed people. So there is both the comforting aspect and the convicting as- aspect uh, of it. Um, let me give an overview of um, the books leading up to the book of Numbers and try to think of it in reference to this God with us principle. If I were to go to um, the end of the book of Genesis and um, the book of Exodus, it is about God with his people in what, in what state do we find his people, the people of God, end of Genesis in all through the book of Exodus, or at least until chapter 12 in Exodus, God with us in slavery. So when God permits, guides, governs, decrees his people to go into bondage as an object lesson that he frees us out of slavery, he, he is with his people. And then when we come to the book of Exodus, from Exodus chapter 12 or 13, in the book of Numbers, we go from God with his people in slavery to now with his, God with his people in their liberation, in their liberty, but in the wilderness. But I, and I want you to see the kind of the redemptive movement. Slavery, freedom, wilderness. And then when we come uh, to the book of Joshua and the book of Judges, we now enter into what place? The promised land. Are you seeing that? The flow. Slaves, free, wilderness, promised land, which represents what? The promised land is a real promised land, Joshua and Judges. Real. It's physical dirt. Physical dirt. But the ultimate truth of the promised land is not renovated Palestine. The ultimate truth of, of, of the promised land is Hebrews 12 and Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12. The patriarchs knew it wasn't just renovated dirt. And the Bible says if it was, they could go back to that place. But they knew they were going where? To the celestial city. You see, see that. God with us in slavery, Genesis, Exodus. God with us in the wilderness, Exodus, the book of Numbers. Then we come to Joshua and Judges, God with us in the promised land, home. Slavery, wilderness, home. We're going home. And we're going to dwell with God here imperfectly, the wilderness experience, obviously imperfectly, even the promised land when we get to Joshua and Judges. Was the promised land a perfect, sinless experience for the people of God? Typologically flowing with milk and honey. Were they ever able to 
fully drive out the Canaanites? No. Was there still sin in this typological promise line? Yes. Will there be sin when we go home? Home. No, there won't. No more enemies. And who will we be with? God. Forever and ever. The theologians call it the beatific vision. Now, many of us have loved ones that have died, and some of us like to think we'll see some of our loved ones again, but who's to say that's God's business? The ones who have died in Christ will see. The ones we have not died in Christ, we won't see. But some of us who have loved ones who have died in Christ, we think, won't it be wonderful to see them? It will be wonderful. I don't exactly know how it's all going to work, but it will be wonderful. But the wonder of wonders is not seeing our mom or our dad or our child, God forbid. They precede us in death. It's to see our Christ, to dwell with our Christ. So that's the flow. The Bible teaches us these things. And I do want to just maybe make an emphasis on the scheme of things. Slavery, freedom, pilgrimage, home. There's no way to bypass that. Um, Even true believers, we still have the flesh, and we're prone to being schnookered, and we want things to be easier than they are, but they're not. There's no way to bypass the cross-bearing, suffering, pilgrimage time to get to the home time, to make the home time, the pilgrimage time, and to, and to forego the, the, the alien hard times. There's no way to break that scheme. You can try whatever you want to do. You will never do it. The scheme for, for the children of God, slavery, pilgrimage, home. That will be our scheme. Saved from sin, saved from slavery to the devil, we are in our time of pilgrimage. We are aliens. This world is not our home. I'm born in this country. I love the country. I was born in Massachusetts. I love Massachusetts. It's not my home. My real citizenship is in heaven, where my God is. So that's what we're looking at. Okay, let's consider some of the things that we learned by the title of the book. The title of the book is Numbers, obviously. So there are... The Old Testament in the autographs, which means it's a fancy term for the, the, what was written by the prophets and the apostles. We call them the, the autographs. But the copies of the autographs are called manuscripts. And those books were written in uh, primarily in the Old Testament Hebrew, a couple of chapters in Esther for Aramaic, maybe another place. It'll come to me early in the morning. And then uh, New Testament Greek, uh, Greek, Koine Greek. And so there is a a version of the Old Testament in Greek called the Septuagint, the LXX, 70, supposedly 70 guys translated it, but LXX, the Septuagint. And the Septuagint uh, calls this book in Greek, um, uh, it's essentially the word we get our word arithmetic from. And um, it's arithmoi, and that means numbers. And so we get our title, the book of Numbers, from the Greek uh, Old Testament. And you can see readily why the translators from the Hebrew into the Greek in the Old Testament would have said, you know what we should call this? Let's call it arithmoi, Numbers. Why? Right out of the gate. This book, when I said I was going to preach the book of Numbers, everybody, including my wife, I think, groaned and said, are you sure you want to do this? We'll see. If I get through it, I'm bombing, I'm choking, I'll switch gears. I thought, as I read it, this would be a great book, the book of Numbers. And right away, and this one, and Gilbildabad, and who's it's, and the numbers, and you think, 
Who in their right mind would do this? But you see why you have the numbers. 74,600, 32,100. There's numbers and census taking all over the place. Hence, the Greek translator said, the book of Numbers. Now, the Jews call it um, God with us. And I'll get to that. Hence, my title. And they're getting at both from the text. Actually, I'll, maybe I'll jump ahead of myself. The phrase, um, God with us, is used. It's used a number of times in chapter 1, uh, maybe verse 6. It's used like 32, 33, 34 times throughout the book. And, um, and uh, God with us is used um, that many times throughout the book. And hence, they, they entitled the book, God with us. And we are going from the, um, the Greek version, the book of Numbers. Now, when I say the difficulty of the census and the name and the numbers, we tend, I mentioned this this morning, all of the Bible is God-breathed. This is Second Timothy three fifteen through 17. Nothing in the Bible is arbitrary. Everything's important. Not everything is as important as everything else. The primary thing is Christ and the gospel, fundamentals of the faith. Read the Apostles' Creed, fundamentals of the faith. Those are the primary things. Secondary things, I think, baptism, church government. I don't think, it's, I don't think baptism or church government or even the Lord's Supper is tertiary. I think it's secondary, but it's not primary. I know it's not primary because Paul says it isn't. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 16 through 17, Paul says, Christ didn't send me to do what? To baptize. He sent me to do what? To preach the gospel. So if you're a Baptist or you're not a Baptist and you think you should sprinkle or pour and dunk and whatever, and okay, enjoy. Fight away with the Bible, but fight in love. But it's not the main thing. If you believe in Christ and you're using only hope and trust in life and death, you're going to heaven. You're my brother in the Lord, whether you sprinkle or dunkle or whatever you do, speak in tongues, secondary. So not everything in the Bible is primary. But everything in the Bible is important because God put it there. Am I right with that? I think I am. And so when God says, here's the book of Numbers, look at all these censuses and all these numbers, it's significant. So we should resist. Nothing good comes easy. And so if you want to grow in the Lord and grow in the Word, you've got to work at it. So if it has to be spoon-fed, you're never going to get strong as a Christian. So if you come to something hard in the Bible and go, oh, that's hard, I'm going to go to the easy things. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but you'll be a spiritual midget until you go home. This is a, a Hebrews chapter 5. I, I'm not picking. This is a Hebrews chapter 5. The Holy Spirit inspires, I think, Paul, but whoever the writer is, the Hebrews says, you're still on milk. Come on, you should be eating like steak by now. You're still on milk. So if you come to a tough passage, pray that the Holy Spirit would give you um, insight. Okay. So God is recording the numbers of his people here. In this case, it's a military census. That's going to be next week's sermon. That's interesting in itself. There are a couple of general things that we learn when God says, I want you to count my people, number them. Now, there are a couple of places when God says, take a census of the people, that means it's a good census. When David says, you know what? I'm going to take a census even when God has told me not to. That's a bad thing. When God says to Moses, um, uh, hit the rock, that's a good thing. When God says to Moses, speak to the rock, and he hits the rock like the first time, that's a bad thing. So when you say, well, wait a minute, I thought what God was against census. No. When he says take one, take one. When he doesn't say take one, don't take one. Does that make sense? 
But when God says, record the numbers of my people, just generally, thematically, what is it teaching us about our God? Not only is he omnipresent, he's everywhere, he's omniscient. And particularly in reference to his people. And what does that mean? He knows who his people are. So we're his children. He's our heavenly father. Christ is our holy brother. He's the shepherd. If you were a shepherd and you didn't know the names of your sheep, what kind of shepherd would you be? You'd be broke because there'd be fat wolves laying around eating your sheep. Our shepherd knows the name of every one of his sheep. Write them down. There's a book. It's a Lamb's Book of Life. And our names are written before the... This is why I'm... A, I hate to use the term Calvinist. But I think by... What did Spurgeon say? Calvinism is just a term for the biblical Christianity. Our names were recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life before they're from eternity. Now, the way our redemption plays out is in time. We, we are justified in time. I don't believe in eternal justification. I think that's obnoxious view. But God knows his people are. So he is a roster of the citizens of heaven. If we belong to Christ, he writes our names down. Our names are written on Christ, and God's name is written on us. That's what this represents. So when we look at God saying, I want a roster of all of my people, God throughout the Bible has a roster, a register of all of his people. So it's, it's not as if gonna, we're going to, as lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to get into heaven, and God's going to say, what are you? who are you? No, my name is right there. From all eternity, you were elected to, sa- to send the Son to save me. And you orchestrated everything to bring me to the Son. You kept me safe in the, in the wilderness. And you brought me home. You, you, you wrote it. There's my name. And our name is written on Christ. And his name is written on us. Amen? That's this, principally. And um, the Bible says this, both in the Old and the New Testament. Isaiah 4. In that day, the branch of the Lord, that's Christ, he'll be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be, be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. This is forward, looking to heaven. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. The glorified church, when she comes down out of heaven, Revelation, what, 21, and, and she will be called the new Jerusalem. The 12 tribes, the leaders of the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles, it's the glorified church. And all of our names are recorded by God. And as we think of the business of God knowing our name, the, 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 the verse that the Holy Spirit used to convert me in a truck in Boston at 2 o'clock in the morning when he converted me um, was essentially from John, John's Gospel, chapter 10. And to him the doorkeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by what? By name. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger does not follow. Christ knows your name and you know the voice of your Christ. That's this principle. It's glorious. So you think, what, do you, what, what can we learn by God recording the names of his people? Tons. It is very comforting. And, um, and then, as I, I mentioned earlier, distinguishing between God as creator and owning all human beings as his creatures, this is Acts chapter 17, the, the Lord's Prayer, the, we, we refer to it as Roman Catholics as the Our Father, Protestants refer to it as the Lord's Prayer, 
It's the disciples' prayer. The Lord's prayer is Genesis is John 17. That's Christ's prayer. That's the high priestly prayer. So we, what we call the Lord's prayer is really the disciples' prayer taught by the Lord, but the Our Father. Um, that business, God is our Father, Christ is our brother, our Savior, um, is, is we belong to him redemptively, salvifically. And he, makes a dis- he distinguishes between those who are his people and those who are not his people. So when God, this is another general thing they were taught, when God numbers his people, he knows who his people are, and he knows who those are who are not his people. And I know everybody likes to think, well, we, we're all children of God. It doesn't matter if you worship a stick. It doesn't matter. All roads lead to heaven. Universalism is not true. It is not true. Every religion really is very exclusive. Talk to a Hindu, talk to a Buddhist, Talk to a, a, a rabbinic Jew. Talk to a Muslim. They're very exclusive, really. They play at being uh, inclusive, but they they are like a Christian. We are we are exclusive. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. So you're either a sheep of Christ. There will be two lines on the last day. Matthew 25. Only two kinds of people: those who are Christ people and those who are not Christ people. We're taught that by this principle. Those who have their names registered here, in this case, a military census, but essentially a census of the the kingdom citizens and those who do not. And there's a place in the Gospels where Christ will say, what are you doing here? (laughs) You don't have your wedding garments. Your name is not recorded. You're not a member of the kingdom. That in itself is, um, to me, um, it's it's a... um, it's a sobering thought to, um, to, to consider the, the, the possibility of not being numbered among Christ's um, people. We're, we're taught that. Um, now, without going too far afield, um, uh, next week's sermon is going to be, a, and I'm just going to touch on this and I'm going to get off, it's going to be a, a particular numbering of a particular class of God's people um, God is going to lead his children out of slavery, which he already has. We're about two years out of slavery here. And he's going to lead us to the very end of the book. I want to say it's year 39 in the pilgrimage. We're we're just on the east side of of the River Jordan, just posed to get into the promised land. God is preparing his people to receive the promised land. And I'll talk about this next week more on primary causes and secondary causes, ordinary means. God is preparing his people to use ordinary means. I'm going to free you extraordinarily through the plagues, but I'm going to have you take the promised land. It will be God providing the efficacy, the success, but he's going to use ordinary means. And the ordinary means by which the people will be kept safe, walking through the wilderness, and, and be able to drive out the Canaanites is the means of war. And God will provide the success, but he, he, he tells the people to prepare using those secondary means or causes. We'll talk about that more later, but that's kind of what's going on. He's preparing his people to receive his promises, and he tells them to prepare to use secondary means. I know sometimes people accuse Calvinists of being robots and thinking we just walk around like puppets. I, I have said this many times. I, I, I would love to be a puppet. I would love to be a puppet of God and only do what the puppeteer, but I know that I'm not a puppet uh, of God because I still sin. 
So it, it is not true that um, Presbyterian or Reformed or Calvinistic people deny the reality of secondary causes. I read chapter 3 of our confession on the eternal decree and chapter 5 on ordinary providence. It's perplexing. No Calvinist can fully explain primary cause, secondary cause, and no Arminian for that. No, no mere man until we go to heaven. But he tells the people to use secondary means. Now, he, another thing that we learn just generally is not only does God number of people, he has different servants. He has servants that will be called out from the, uh, uh, from the number of the larger body to be used as warriors, as fighting men. So there will be some people that will be used as a servant to fight his battles. There'll be other people, whether they're too old or too young, or they're females, or they're the, the clergy, as it were. I don't like that term, but I'll use that. Or the clergy, the Levites. They're not going to fight because he has other purposes for them. And so he has a people He means to dwell with his people. He numbers his people. He knows his people. This is for our comfort. And the the body of his people are are, are variously gifted. This is a 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans chapter 12. And so in the body of Christ, we don't all have the same function. And we learn that just principally looking at this here. Now, I mentioned that the Jews refer to this uh, book, I'll butcher the Hebrew. I took two years Hebrew. I know baby Hebrew. Three years Greek, baby Greek. Two years Hebrew, baby, baby Hebrew. The word is be mid bar. It means in the wilderness. And they get it from where? Verse one. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. That's why the Jews say, this is God with us in the wilderness. And um, the way that the Jews would um, divide the Old Testament it, it's, it's divided variously, but even the New Testament shows us a, a way that they divide it. They divide it, it, it this way. Uh, the law, which they'll refer to as Torah, the prophets, the Nevim, and the writings, the Ketuvim. I th- I'm butchering everything. And even the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Emmaus um, says the, the, the law and the prophets. So he'll refer to these things. So when we come here, obviously in the book of Numbers, we're in, the, we're in the, 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 the Torah, the law, or the Greek is Pentateuch. Penta is five, Tuch is scrolls. So in the Greek, it's literally five scrolls, the five books of Moses. And so we're in that Torah portion of Scripture in the book of, of law, in the book of Numbers. Um, Numbers 1.1, 1, 1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting, Moses is the writer of the first five books of the Bible. Um, The tent of meeting has been established one month prior to this particular passage. It's where God would meet with his people through his representative. The people of God heretofore were slaves for 430 years. The book of Exodus 19 says this. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, the very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they sent, set out from Rephidim. They camped in the wilderness of Sinai. They camped in the wilderness, and they, the Israel camped in front of the mountain. And in our passage, we're told it's the second month of the second year after they came out of the land of Egypt. So that puts us historically somewhere around 1400 BC-ish. So the people of God were slaves, and now they're two years free, The book of Numbers is going to describe two generations. 
the generation of Jews that were slaves, freed, and they're going to die in the wilderness, and their children and their wives that didn't die in the wilderness, and Caleb and Joshua, who enter the promised land and do the actual fighting. So two generations in the book of Numbers. And why did that first generation of people die in the wilderness and not make it into the, the promised land? Because they didn't believe God. This is read Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4. It was the military men that said, we can't go into the promised land and take them the way that God said for us to do it because we're grasshoppers and they're giants. And God said, you're going to die in the wilderness. They didn't have any faith. So that's where we are in the book of Numbers. Uh, Actually, there's a bit of an overlap from one generation dying off to another. And um, when you go from 26 to 36, it is that second generation preparing to um, enter into uh, the promised land. That's an overview of the book. I find it... um, I find these books terribly interesting. Most of us as Christians know the New Testament far better than we know the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is two-thirds of the Bible. And as St. Augustine would say, that the, the, the New Testament is in the Old Testament in seed form. And when we come to the, to the New Testament, it's the Old Testament in bloom and full flower. And so it helps us to see that when we come to the New Testament, these, the concepts that we believe as New Testament Christians, they're not new. The children of God were taught that God is with them every step of the way in the book of Numbers. The children of God were taught this world is not your home. You're just passing through. This isn't just strictly New Testament. Where were they taught? In the book of Numbers. The, the children of God were taught that in this life you're going to fight, spiritually fight, physically fight for them. Where were they taught that? In the book of Numbers. And the the people of God were told, live your whole life looking forward to and longing for what what Paul says in the book of Philippians. I'm going home. Set your mind on things above and not on things below. It's all taught here. It's all taught here. J.C. Rowell says, I'm not a political preacher, but the one political axiom I love is Christ is king. When we set our minds on things above and not on things below... We will not be knocked about every four years. As if if this guy doesn't get in and that person does. God raises up a kingdom. He puts it. I'm not saying don't be a good citizen. Be the best citizen you can be. Pray that God raise up godly leaders. But live with an eternal perspective like these people lived. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.